Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Ocilia and I'm joined with one of my longtime co-hosts, Megan Rutkay. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about the European Union's most recent economic recovery plan. Originally introduced by France and Germany, the plan calls for over $500 billion in fiscal stimulus in order to aid the economies of Europe suffering from the effects of COVID-19. We'll cover what the plan entails, why is it so significant, which member states have already come out against it, and how will the plan affect the European Union's long-term geopolitical and economic goals. Eric Jones is Director of European and Eurasian Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Professor Jones has written extensively on European monetary integration and macroeconomic governance and has been active in public debates about the European response to the global economic and financial crisis. Professor Jones's contributions on these subjects have been published in, among others, The Financial Times, New York Times, USA Today, and newspapers and magazines across Europe. I was fortunate to take two of Professor Jones's courses last fall, and I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast. Professor Jones, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, thank you for having me, Megan. To start off, what is this proposed European Commission Economic Recovery Plan? What does it say, and why is it so historic and significant in the context of European unity and fiscal integration? So the European Commission has just come out with this plan. It's called Next Generation EU. And the, the really interesting thing about this plan is that they're, they're, they're talking about raising 750 billion euros in the bond markets that they're going to pay off over a period that's longer than seven years. That's not something that the European Commission has ever done before in, in such large volumes. So the idea is if the European Commission can borrow money and then pay it back over a long period of time, then that starts to make the European Commission look like a regular national government that borrows money and pays it back over a long period of time. And, and what the Commission has also proposed is that it'll pay back that money by giving itself uh, some new tax raising authority. And that new tax raising authority is also very important because it suggests that the European Commission will have uh, whole new revenue streams that flow into it, which makes it a little bit more uh, autonomous relative to national governments. Now, there are other parts on the spending side as well, but, but I think that the really novel and unique bits of this are the borrowing and the taxing bits, not the spending bits. The spending bits we can uh, we can go over, but that's not the real uniqueness here. Professor Jones, um, now, from what I've been reading and from what I um, gathered from your lecture, this is an important step, uh, a significant step forward uh, towards fiscal integration within the European Union, a topic that has been in the past very controversial with some of its members. So my question for you is why do why do France and Germany support such fiscal integration now as opposed to when they had the similar chances in the in the, in the past? I think the, the reason that this is so controversial is on the spending side. Well, I mean, the taxing side is definitely controversial as well. So don't get me wrong. But on the spending side, um, what they're proposing with this $750 billion is to set aside $250 billion, and that would be loans that they could make out to member state governments, and member state governments would pay that back. That's a fairly conventional feature, although, let's be honest, they've never done it on this magnitude before. 
the more unconventional feature is the 500 billion, which gets broken up into two chunks. But but that 500 billion is going to be spent, uh, and, and in many ways, it starts to look like a transfer from one group of member states, the net contributing countries, to another group of member states. Those are countries that are net recipients. So if the European Commission is going to borrow money to transfer money, that's truly something that would be controversial. And the the Germans have resisted that time and again in the past. but, But given the scale of the crisis that Europe faces right now, as a result of government actions to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Germans felt they had really no choice but to support this kind of project. Because without supporting this kind of project, it was very possible that those countries that are hardest hit by this crisis, by which I mean really Spain and Italy, which are also countries that are relatively fragile in fiscal terms, would never respond adequately. And if those countries do badly in the European economy, then the European economy as a whole does badly, which means Germany does badly as well. So Germany has signed up to this because signing up to this is the only way to ensure that Europe as a whole has a strong recovery. All right. I actually had a quick follow-up question to that, which is, so we're talking about $500 billion to $750 billion, uh, sorry, euro spending uh, through this new recovery act. How is the European Commission planning on transferring, on doing the transfers, and where would this money go, and to whom would this money go to? So that's a really good question. The, the way it works is the individual member state governments have to come up with a plan. So they have to ask for the money, and they have to say what they're going to use the money for. Um, that is particularly relevant for the money that they're going to borrow, uh, on the, the spending side, the direct spending side, they've split the $500 billion of direct spend into two pots. One is $310 billion and the other is $190. The $310 billion you, again, have to apply for. Um, and, and so countries that, that need this money will have to put together a plan. They'll have to explain how they're going to use the money. They'll, they'll get the plan approved. And then the commission will dole out the money in installments so that each time you need more money, you have to show that you've accomplished what you needed to accomplish in the first place. The 190 gets channeled through existing European Commission programs. And so existing European Commission programs could be things like for research. uh, They could be things like for educational exchange. Um, they could be things like for regional and structural funds, the common agricultural policy. So that would get spent like the money is normally spent through the European Union, but they're just adding to the usual budget because a lot of these things are going to be really useful in stimulating Europe's recovery from the crisis. Um, now, the end result of this is that although it's a huge pot of money, $750 billion, it's not quite clear that every government will get exactly as much money as it needs. Instead, they'll have to divide it up according to to the formulas that are relevant to each of the different categories and according to the proposals that are made by each of the different governments. And then hopefully it'll all work out in the end in a way that that fosters recovery. The Italians think, for example, that they're going to get over 170 billion euros out of this giant pot of money 
I think that's probably an overestimation of the amount of money that they're going to be able to receive at the end of the day. And and let's not forget, the Italians also pay taxes and the Italians also contribute to the European Commission. So while they're going to receive a lot of money, they're going to pay a lot of money into the kitty as well. And at the end of the day, the net transfer is going to be much smaller than the headline figure that the Italian government is advertising. Wow, that's a really important nuance. Um, we've talked about why you know, Germany at long last has supported you know, plans such as this, you know, especially to support countries that have been hardest hit. That said, which countries you know, oppose the plan so far and why? Opposition to the plan comes from uh, two different clusters of countries. There's one cluster of countries, Austria, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, they often get branded in the media as the frugal four. These countries don't believe that the 500 billion that I talked about should be given out in grants. They believe that that money should all be in loans. So when we talk about 750 billion, it should be 750 billion in loans. And the reason that they believe that is because they're worried that if this money is not given out in loans, then governments won't spend it efficiently. Uh, and they're also worried that if they do give this money out in loans, then governments won't do the necessary fiscal consolidation so that the next time there's a crisis, they'll be better prepared. And they're looking specifically at Italy, but also at Spain in this context, because these four countries believe that Italy and Spain should have done more to prepare their fiscal accounts prior to this crisis so that when this crisis hit, they would be in a better position to respond. Now, the other group of countries would be like the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. We call them the Visegrad countries. That would be Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. They're more apprehensive about the fact that the European Commission is borrowing money at all because they look at this as a future increase in taxes. Remember, just like I said, that Italy is going to have to pay for the money that it receives to a certain extent. Well, these countries look at it and they go, anytime we increase the budget for the European Union, we end up paying. These countries are typically net recipients of EU funds, but that doesn't mean they like to see a big EU government. And they're also concerned about the fact that any money that they receive would have this supervision by the European Commission attached to it. And they're worried that with this supervision, the Commission will try to interfere with what they're doing domestically and politically. And so in that sense, they're, they're playing a tough game because they're worried that this might this budget, this proposal might create leverage over them that they'd rather not face. Now, those two groups are the two groups that we talk about primarily. The, the, the countries like Italy and Spain are obviously very enthusiastic, and the French and the Germans are enthusiastic as well. So the expectation is that with all these large countries in favor of the proposal, it's likely to succeed. We just don't know what the precise terms of the budget will look like once it's agreed. And that agreement probably won't take place until at least July and, and most likely December of this year. So, Professor Jones, so it seems to me that while the Frugal Four have almost this, this uh, almost libertarian, uh, maybe 
uh, more ideological debate going on with the European Union, the visitor countries are a little, a little bit more concerned that the European Commission, Commission would dangle the money uh, in return for changes in their domestic policies. Is that, is, would that be a correct characterization of their, of their, of their true uh, opposition to the deal? So, uh, this is an interesting point, Franz. I mean, the, the, the Frugal Four would like to see the European Commission interfere much more obviously and much more directly in the policies that are made in the countries that receive the money, right? So, so they want to see more conditionality because the Frugal Four have no intention of asking for that money in the first place, right? Um, the, it's the Visegrad Four that are the ones that are more apprehensive about the conditionality. Uh, and, and let's be honest, the Spaniards and the Italians are not thrilled about the conditionality, about this European Commission supervision either. But if that's the price that they have to pay to get access to the large amount of money that's on offer, that's a price they're willing to pay. The countries of Central and Eastern Europe are much more reluctant and they're gonna drive a hard bargain in order to ensure that any interference in what they do domestically, politically is, is minimal in the context of this new budget. And you know, aside from the proposal to issue debt to finance grants for COVID stricken countries, the European Commission proposal also contains a strong focus on European industrial policy including medical supply chain independence, as well as greater impetus for innovation in technological and digital industries. How significant are these industrial aspects of the proposal? And if adopted, what changes would they bring? Well, that's a good question, Megan. I mean, the, these industrial aspects of the proposal are the one big point of common ground between the French and the Germans on the one hand, and the Austrians, Danes, Dutch, and, and Swedes on the other. Um, as a matter of fact, they're also the big point of commonality between what the Commission is proposing now and what European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was proposing even before this coronavirus crisis. The only new element is the emphasis on healthcare. But the European Commission has been adamant for a while now that Europe needs to strengthen its supply chains, that Europe needs to acquire some kind of strategic autonomy, is what they call it, uh, in, in terms of digital and green technologies, uh, and, and, and at the same time, that, that Europe has the ability to compete with the United States and with China. And, and what this plan is going to do is it's going to push forward that agenda in a very strong way. Now, what you should know on the back of that is that it's not just the European Union that's doing the fiscal response to this coronavirus crisis. The bigger fiscal response is actually not a European fiscal response at all. It's at the national level. And at the national level, governments are having to save manufacturing firms that are not getting any revenue. And by saving those firms, these governments are going to end up having big positions in those firms by the time this crisis finally comes to an end. And in, in, in that context, these governments are going to have what are effectively a large number of state-owned or partly-owned enterprises. Uh, and, and that gives them a lot of leverage to shape the industrial policy 
that the European Commission is now suggesting would be coordinated at the European level. So this is a big deal. I think we're going to see a much different European economy coming out of this crisis than we had going into it as a consequence. Different and, I would suggest, probably more inward-looking as well. Wow, that you know, that is a really big change. And you mentioned that you know, the French and the Germans and some of the Frugal Four, you know, they support it. Um, do the Visegrad countries, do they have strong feelings about it? Do they support or oppose it? Um, how do they feel, would you say? Well, the Visegrad Four are actually really interesting in this regard, because on the one hand, these four countries are sewn very tightly into German supply chains already. So anything that reorients European supply chains to make them more resilient, and I'll put resilient in quotation marks, um, more resilient by making them more Eurocentric will probably wind up throwing a lot of new business into Central and Eastern Europe where they have very high quality manufacturing and relatively lower labor costs. And they've got great proximity to both Germany and Northern Italy. And let's not forget Northern Italy is Europe's second industrial heartland, right? So it's a hugely important part of European supply chain. So in that sense, the four Visegrad countries are very supportive. On the other hand, what this new emphasis on industrial policy contains is tighter investment screening for third countries, which means that when China wants to come in and invest in a country, the European Commission is going to put much tighter screening on what kind of investments China can make or Chinese firms can make. And ditto for the United States. Uh, and for the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, this is problematic because they've been courting Chinese investment as part of what we call the 17 plus one negotiations. Uh, they've been courting this Chinese investment and now they're risking uh, losing access to supply chains that extend all the way into Asia. So on the one hand, it's good because it reorients things toward Europe where they have a strength or a strong card to play. On the other hand, it's less attractive because it might cut them off from a valuable source of investment that they could be getting from China. And Professor Jones, do we have a notion as to how um, US policymakers are responding to this European turn towards strategic autonomy? Well, you know, that's interesting, Franz. I mean, the, the fact is that a lot of this European turn towards strategic autonomy was encouraged by the trade policies and the investment policies that were introduced by the Trump administration in 2017, right? So, so the reason we're having this conversation in Europe right now is because the United States pulled away from the open trading system that the US successive US administrations had nurtured uh, since the end of the Second World War. And, and the Europeans are responding to that. Now, I, I haven't seen an official European response to these developments in Europe. I think probably because right now the US response uh, is focused or, or US trade policy is focused so intently on China and, and on the different tracks of negotiations that the Trump administration has been engineering with China over the last two years. That is the major focus for them. Uh, and, and, and by the same token, 
the Trump administration has never been very enthusiastic about what the European Union has to offer as an economic entity. And, and so I don't think that the European Union can make itself any less attractive in that respect, so far as the Trump administration is concerned. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when the Trump administration gears up for this. And if Trump were reelected, how this would factor into the way the transatlantic relationship might evolve. And likewise, have we seen a Chinese response to Europe's turn towards strategic autonomy, or is it too early to tell yet? Yeah, I think it's too early to tell. The Chinese right now are, are, are very unhappy with the way the whole coronavirus narrative is being portrayed, both in the United States and in Europe. And the Chinese in Europe have been pushing back very hard at any suggestion that the Chinese government didn't respond adequately to the pandemic or that the Chinese government hasn't been solidaire with the Europeans and sharing medical supplies and all the rest. So in that sense, I think there's a, there's a kind of an overlay of diplomatic uh, chatter that we would need to bring uh, to bear. And then an underlay in these 17 plus one negotiations, right? The, the Chinese are not negotiating with the whole of the European Union. They're negotiating with a subset of European Union countries to build these special relationships as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Chinese have been quite content to pursue economic relations with Europe and that kind of divide and I would I don't want to say conquer, but divide and win special favor along the way using the investment uh, as the lever rather than trade per se, right? Because the European Union is the competent trade authority. So, so in that sense, I think the tighter investment screening is going to be problematic for the Chinese, but I don't think they've really woken up to that as of yet. Right. And that is not even mentioning the, the whole 5G Huawei debate currently going on. Now, I want to switch uh, gears a little bit and because the European Central Bank yesterday had a meeting on June, on June 4th. Now, could you please tell us about what this um, final iteration of this plan might look like, uh, given what happened yesterday, or, or was it not that significant? Okay, yeah, no, so uh, we've been talking right now about the fiscal side of the European response. What we haven't been talking about is the monetary side of the European response. And the monetary side of the European response has been really interesting. I mean, a little bit terrifying at times, but, but interesting. Uh, the terrifying bit was the very initial bit on the 12th of March when there was a kind of a miscue coming out of the European Central Bank that sent the bond markets into a, a heightened state of volatility. But the European Central Bank has been able to, to retool its stance and has come out very aggressively trying to ensure both that bond markets are stable uh, and that firms have adequate access to liquidity. What happened yesterday was just an expansion on those efforts. Um, the, the, what they've done in particular was uh, increase by about 600 billion euros the amount of uh, sovereign debt that the European Central Bank or system of central banks can purchase in order to stabilize financial market performance across the euro area. And what that means in practice is that the price of Italian bonds now has a pretty hard floor under it. Uh, and you saw that immediately in the market as the price of Italian bonds went up, as soon as everybody realized 
not just that the European Central Bank was going to add that $600 billion to the envelope of purchases that it's going to make, but, and crucially, uh, that it's going to keep reinvesting the maturity of the bonds that it holds, uh, or rather reinvesting the principle of the bonds that it holds when they mature uh, for at least two more years on that program, the Special Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, uh, and, and almost indefinitely or until inflation rates recover on its regular public sector purchase program, which is the European uh, phrase for quantitative easing, what we're doing in the United States. So the, the, the monetary effort in the European Central Bank has been huge and it just got bigger. Uh, and, and that's a good thing for stabilizing the European recovery. Um, what, what the European Central Bank has made clear, though, is that this monetary side of the response is inadequate on its own. The fiscal side, that thing that we talked about at the beginning, the European Recovery Program or Next Generation EU, is absolutely vital for the monetary side to succeed. So what we're seeing for the first time in, in, in I would say, the history of Europe's economic and monetary union is a real coordination of monetary and fiscal effort at the European level. And, and the, their success in doing that is in many ways a function of the failure to do that in the last crisis, which shows you that the European Union uh, is able to learn uh, and in learning, able to generate more effective macroeconomic policy. Wow. And so, we've, you know, we've talked about, you know, you described how the ECB is taking on this you know, really strong monetary policy, but that it would be inadequate on its own, that this fiscal policy that we've talked about, the um, European Commission plan would be the fiscal push. You know, it has potential to be the fiscal push that Europe potentially needs. Um, that is, if the fiscal plan is um, agreed upon. Um, if the plan, if the proposal as it is right now were to be agreed upon and implemented, what would it mean for the future prospects for EU unity and integration, especially with regards to the north-south and east-west divides within the EU? Okay, so, so I'm going to answer this question in two different ways, right? One is just to give you an illustration of why the fiscal policy and the monetary policy need to go hand in glove. Uh, and, and then we're going to flip that over and talk about how much even a hand in glove monetary and fiscal policy can heal the divisions between North and South and East and West, okay? So, so let's start with the hand and glove bit. What the European Central Bank can do is make sure that firms can get access to credit so when they don't have any revenue, they can borrow money and continue to pay their workers, pay their rent, pay their electricity and all the rest, right? The problem is, is that if it's just monetary policy, then, what happens is firms just accumulate ever-increasing amounts of debt. And, and ever-increasing amounts of debt, even at very low rates of interest, will eventually blow up the balance sheets of these firms. So what we need is economic activity to start so that we can start getting revenue into these firms. And the fiscal side is to create that economic activity. We also need uh, to make sure that even though firms get access to credit, the banks want to give firms credit. So what we need is somebody to come in and guarantee that the firms that borrow this money, even when they don't have any revenue, are, are actually going to pay it back. So the other aspect of the fiscal component is that governments are going in and guaranteeing the debt 
that these firms are taking on. So you've got governments guaranteeing the debt and you've got governments ensuring that the revenue actually shows up. Uh, and at the juxtaposition of those two things, the monetary policy can work. Now, now this is all really good. This is going to get us back to a situation where the European economy starts functioning again. But, but this has done nothing to make the South any less Southern or the North any less Northern, the East any less Eastern or the West any less Western. So what we need to do is to figure out why those divergences existed in the first place. And we need to figure out how those divergences were exacerbated by the crisis. Let me just give you a very simple illustration. Um, if you want to go to the beach in Europe, northern Germany is a lot less fun than southern France, Spain, or Italy, right? So that's a structural issue. And, and, and as structural issues go, it means that the Spanish and the Italian economies are much more dependent on tourism than the German economy is. And, and, and yet tourism only works if people can fly there, if they can stay in a hotel without worrying about getting sick, if they can go to a crowded beach and eat in a crowded restaurant from somebody they've never met before and hopefully will never see again. And, and, and this virus, unfortunately, disrupts all that touristic activity. So what we're going to see is that Southern Europe is going to be hit very hard by this virus because it's going to lose a whole tourist season. Neither monetary policy nor fiscal policy can repair that. The best they can do is blunt that impact. So coming out of this crisis, the North is going to be relatively less affected than the South of Europe is. Even with the most generous plan that you could imagine, the two parts of Europe are going to diverge and it's going to be hard for them to come back together. So the answer to your question is that Europe is doing better than you might expect it to do, but even doing better than you might expect it to do is not going to be enough to, to heal the divisions that this crisis is going to take. It's going to require many years of concerted effort at all levels of government uh, to bring these parts of Europe back together. And thank you for describing how this fiscal response and the monetary response are both necessary to go hand in glove for this recovery effort. Um, and that is, you know, if the plan as it is right now were to be implemented and agreed upon, you know, in a similar form as it exists right now, although, you know, it's quite possible that it will change throughout the negotiations. What do you think is a likelihood that this plan, you know, is finalized and implemented in a similar way that it exists right now? Um, or, you know, what is the likelihood that it changes dramatically? I mean, so the answer to your first question is zero. Right. I mean, they're going to start negotiations. And so it will, by definition, change. Um, the, the answer to your second question is harder because we're not quite sure how much it's going to change. And the, the variables that we're looking at, it better to understand how much it's going to change is the balance between the, the amount of money in grants and the amount of money in loans. That's one thing. Uh, and, and the other thing that we're going to look at is the balance between how much money you get and how much conditionality you have to follow to get that money, how hard it is to put the plan in, how ungenerous the, the, the little increments of funding are as you implement the plan and how strict the supervision of the European Commission is. So let's imagine a worst case scenario. Worst case scenario would be that, that the Dutch, the Austrians, the Danes, the Swedes, and in these countries in the Visegrad 
all agree not only to shrink the amount of money. So we're starting with 750. Let's say they shrink it down to 500. But then we're going to convert all that money into loans. So worst case scenario, we get like 500 billion in loans. Now, that would be bad. It would be even worse if the loans had really tight conditionality attached to them. Um, but that would still be better than no response at all, which is effectively what we got during the last crisis. So even in the worst case scenario, we get something better than we had in the last crisis. The problem is, is that this crisis is actually much more damaging than the last crisis was. Uh, and, and so better is better, but better may not be good enough. And I think that's what, what everybody is worried about. The other thing they're worried about is how long it's going to take for agreement to be reached. Right. Think about it. I just told that story about tourism. Um, that means that sometime by the end of the summer, it's very likely that the governments of Spain and Italy will wake up to the reality that with a failed tourist season, huge numbers of small and medium sized enterprises that cater to tourists, particularly close to coastal regions, uh, are, are going to go bankrupt and all those people are going to be unemployed. And those people were all counting on that money they were going to make over the summer to get through the winter, but they didn't make any money and now they don't have any employment. So they're going to have to go through the winter with a whole lot of nothing. Uh, and, and in that situation, I think everybody is going to be expecting help from Europe to come immediately. But if they're still negotiating in September and October over this budget, if they haven't agreed on the new proposal by that time, the money won't be available because there won't be any agreement on how the money should be raised and distributed and all the rest, at which point we could see real political unrest in Southern Europe. And I think that's why we have to look at the time factor as well as the balance between grants and spending, the overall size of the package uh, and the conditions that are attached to using it. So there are lots of variables in play here that we're gonna have to pay attention to as this moves forward. And you've described the tourism sector. Um, do you think that the tourism sector will be the sector hit hardest by the pandemic in countries like Spain or Italy? Or do you think there are other sectors that will be hit you know, even harder? Um, and would the plan benefit those sectors also? There are some sectors that are going to be, you know, effectively devastated by this, right? Imagine the movie theater sector. I don't mean to chuckle at that, right? But I mean, you know, when you think about what it means to be a mom and pop movie theater, right? Because a lot of movie theaters in Europe are not owned by giant chains. They're just small mom and pop outfits. Um, you can't have people come into the movies right now. And so those guys are devastated, Right. Anybody that relies on big events, so if you're a, a concert organizer, you're crushed. Um, but, but also in manufacturing, there are going to be significant problems because of all the disruptions in the supply chains that we've seen. Um, now, the difference between manufacturing and these other sectors is not the extent of the impact of the crisis, right? The impact of the crisis is going to be considerable in manufacturing. But the difference is the, the corporate ownership structure. It's much easier for the state to step in and inject money into manufacturing firms. Even relatively small manufacturing firms are still larger than your average mom and pop restaurant in a tourist destination. As a consequence of which, what we're going to see is that manufacturing is going to be very hard hit and already has been very hard hit 
in this crisis. And yet manufacturing is going to be easier for European governments to rescue because they know how to get money into those firms and they know how to save them. That's why I talked about the tourist industry, because the tourist industry and all of these micro enterprises, any enterprise that's five individuals or less, um, those are the guys that are going to be devastated, not because the crisis is particularly evil for them. It is evil, but not particularly evil, um, but because they're so hard to rescue and being hard to rescue means they're going to fall through the cracks. Now, Professor Jones, to wrap us up, this plan has been described by some as the European Union's Hamiltonian or Madisonian moment. I know that you wrote a recent piece in your website about it. So would you please elaborate further in this debate and what these concepts mean in this European context? So, you know, I always... I, I always worry that when Europeans talk about a Hamiltonian moment, um, that, that they think Hamilton is a, is a rapper in New York who, who is friends with Mary Poppins, right? I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, is that American history is, is, is unique in many respects. And what Alexander Hamilton did at the end of the 18th and beginning uh, of the 19th century in the United States uh, took place at a time when the way fiscal institutions worked was very different from the way they work today uh, on, on many different levels. And the way people interacted with fiscal institutions was very different. And what Hamilton set in place was the possibility for the federal government to assert a strong fiscal control. And, and, and I respect that that is a, you know, an epical moment in U.S. history, but that's not the moment we're seeing here in Europe today. What we're seeing is a, a, a relatively more modest change in the fiscal structures of the European Union. I'm not saying that it's an absolutely modest change in absolute terms. If you compare what the European Commission had as its fiscal possibilities before this proposal and what it might have after this proposal, in absolute terms, the jump is huge, right? Um, but, but in comparative terms, the member state governments are never going to surrender the degree of fiscal authority that U.S. governments surrendered back at the end of the 18th and early 19th century in the United States, right? Um, they're never going to surrender that because fiscal politics in Europe is essentially local in nature, right? And the countries that have managed to centralize fiscal authority are never going to surrender that. If anything, regions are trying to extract fiscal authority from the central state. If you were to ask me why Catalonia wants to leave Spain, I would tell you a story that was predominantly fiscal in nature. If you ask me why uh, Flanders wants to increase its autonomy in Belgium, again, the story is predominantly fiscal. Uh, and, and so in that sense, the idea that the European Union is going to absorb fiscal authority is, to my mind, insane. Uh, it'll get a little bit bigger, but it ain't going to get to be in the way the U.S. federal government is relative to U.S. states. Having said that, the, the real issue is the extent to which this effort to increase fiscal authority at the European level actually organizes politics in a dangerous and destructive way. 
right? Uh, and, and that's why we talk not just about Hamilton, but about Madison. Madison's Federalist 10 is uh, an argument against uh, the politics of faction, uh, which is uh, an 18th century political science term. Uh, they didn't really have political science back then, but it's an eight, 18th century political term to describe vested interests, right? And, and fixed distributive coalitions. I keep using them contemporary political jargon, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Uh, and, and when we saw the initial proposal, which was a Franco-German proposal um, to, to have more generous activity at the federal level or at the European level uh, in, in the context of this crisis, and the opposition that this generated among those frugal four who I mentioned, the Danes, the Dutch, the Austrians, and the Swedes, um, that actually became very problematic because it, it pitted one part of Europe against another part of Europe. And that's not what, what you would want to see. It's not good for uh, a, a lasting union of states like this. Uh, it's quite limiting. And so I do worry that if the commission succeeds, it will succeed in creating the potential for real polarizing fiscal conflict at some point in the future. And if you want to see what that potential looks like, just look at the United States today. Well, Professor Jones, on behalf of the Hopkins Podcast and Foreign Affairs, I'd just like to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just uh, really giving our listeners your expertise on the matter. Oh, France, it was great. And Megan, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to get the latest and greatest of Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs content. We'll see you next time.